You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. To uh, open us up in prayer. And then we're going to continue our we're going to continue our discussion in 1 Thessalonians. So let's pray together. God, we do love you so much and we praise you and thank you again for the time that we have this morning. God, we thank you for the report that we've gotten from Chris about the work that you're doing in his life and the work that you're doing in his ministry. And God, we do continue to ask that you would give him wisdom as he moves forward and us as a church wisdom and knowing how we can be more and more involved in the work that you desire to do in Uganda. God, we pray that you would be with our time in the word this morning now. Father, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would teach us. God, that ultimately you would be glorified this morning um, and that we would be uh, more informed, not just in our heads, but in our hearts about what you desire for us as a church and what you desire for us as individuals in this church. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been doing some, some introduction and some background on the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've looked at it for the past couple of weeks now. Um, two weeks ago, we looked heavily at the, at the background behind this church plant. How does this church start? How does God place it here in Thessalonica? We said that ultimately God, through a vision, calls Paul to Macedonia, where he eventually goes to Philippi. He's not permitted to stay in Philippi because of persecution. He ends up finding his way to Thessalonica, where this church is started. We said that Paul... From all accounts in the book of Acts, has no intentions of coming to Macedonia. It's only as he's asleep and he has this dream of a man calling out to him to come to Macedonia because they need to hear about Jesus. Is he then led by the Holy Spirit to this area and then God works out the details where this church is planted. People respond to the gospel. We said that he was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, maybe six months. And this church has started and it's sustaining itself through the power of the Holy Spirit. We said that this letter is ultimately a response to a report that Timothy brings to him. So Paul sends Timothy back, kind of wondering, did anything, did anything work? We were there for such a short amount of time. Has that church completely collapsed and fallen apart? Timothy comes back and, and says, no, to the contrary, they're doing quite well. They're being sustained by the Holy Spirit. They are growing in their knowledge of Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to give further instruction. Instruction that he wishes he could give in person, but has not been permitted to right now according to God's plan. And so he writes to give them instruction. And so we start that process of seeing that instruction ourselves this morning. I direct your attention back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Again, we'll be in verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
We're taking the teaching of 1 Thessalonians and we're applying it to this church plant. We said two weeks ago that, that Paul had a responsibility to share, to share salvation with others. That in order for a church to start, it necessitates the gospel going out in verbal form. A content of the gospel has to be communicated to lost people. And we said that as individuals, we have a responsibility to share the gospel. And we've been working through reasons that we don't do that. We split up into groups a couple of weeks ago and we talked about why don't we share the gospel more often. And then we looked at how God refutes those excuses in the book of Exodus when God calls Moses to go communicate freedom to the Israelites in Egypt. Moses comes up with excuse after excuse, and God answers each one of those excuses. And we said those excuses are very similar to our excuses, that we're not qualified, that people won't listen to us. And we said that God goes with us. Jesus says, I'm with you till the end of the age. He says, go and make disciples. Lo, I'm with you always. We said that that ultimately God is going to bring salvation out. That it's not up to us to convince people. It's not up to us to to do anything special in sharing the gospel. That ultimately the Holy Spirit draws people to salvation. So we looked at our responsibility to overcome those excuses. That if if this church is going to work, if this church is going to do what God wants it to do, it necessitates that we share the gospel. But in sharing the gospel, it's important that we know how to see salvation in others. How do we recognize when people are actually getting saved? I've talked with some of you individually, and it's a frustration that we share the gospel and we see people respond for a time. And then it it begins to look like maybe they're not a Christian because I can't seem to get them to do anything that Scripture says that they should be doing. And so if we're going to be faithful to share the gospel, I know for some of you it's going to necessitate an understanding of how to see and recognize salvation. If we can recognize how to see salvation, I think it's going to empower us more to share the gospel faithfully because we know what to recognize. We know what we're looking for. We know how to determine if the message is being successful or not. Before we get into that, I think it's important that we don't blow right through the introduction. We believe here that that every word in Scripture is inspired, which means genealogies, which means intros to letters. Even though they're easy to, to go right through, um, I think that the Holy Spirit has chosen each one of these words for a specific reason. So it says in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We said that obviously most of us know who Paul is, formerly Saul, who persecuted the church. We said that Silvanus is Silas. The man who accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. Timothy, a young man who Paul has has taken alongside. We don't know what happened to Timothy's dad. Um, There's no mention of him in scripture. So it seems that either he's, he's out of the picture, he's died. For some reason, he's not in Timothy's life. And Paul has taken Timothy under his wings and is, is discipling Timothy, is pouring into Timothy, is training Timothy. We see Timothy go from a young man to a, to a leader in the church. So these three men have been doing ministry in Thessalonica. And they are now writing encouragement together to Thessalonica. So it's to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time for our English lesson. What is the word in, I-N, in this sentence? What part of speech does it represent? Does anybody know? It's a preposition. And what do all prepositions have? They have objects. 
They have objects in this prepositional phrase, and those objects are, if it's more than one, communicate extreme likeness. Extreme likeness. And it's important to realize that when Paul writes, he does not say to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses one preposition. One preposition and two objects. And what that communicates to us is a high view of Christ. A high view of Christ is being communicated to us in this introduction. When God, or when Paul takes God the Father and Jesus and unites them in a prepositional phrase like this, it's the, it's the closest way that he can unite them in a written form. He is communicating to us the quality of these two beings. The, he, he's communicating the, um, the likeness of these two. He's communicating the deity of Christ when he unites them to God the Father. Don't miss this into the introduction. It's an extremely high view of Christ that's being communicated. Paul continues this as he continues to talk to the Thessalonians. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good and hope through you. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And to the steadfastness of Christ. When, when I've taught on the Trinity before, I've told you that in the New Testament, sometimes it gets really hard to know if you're talking about Jesus or God the Father. Because the authors relate them so closely together. I mean, look at the structure of 2 Thessalonians 3.5. May the Lord, singular, direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Is he talking about God the Father or Jesus when he says, Lord... I don't know. They're so close together. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. They're both referred to as Lord all through Scripture. Paul is communicating to us a high view of Christ in this very first introduction to the Thessalonians. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word Lord is the same word used for God in the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? What is it? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Then we, we transition to New Testament times. Well, only the Jews are reading Hebrew. And so they begin to translate it into Greek, which is becoming the common language at that time. So you have some translators who take Old Testament Hebrew, translate it into Greek, similar to what we have with the ESV or whatever version you're using today. You have the English translation of the Old Testament and the English translation of the New Testament. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, we see English words when we read our New and Old Testament. They saw Greek words for the first time when they read their Old Testament. When they take God the Father in the Old Testament, when they translate it into Greek, 
When they take God the Father, they use the word kurios in the, New Test- in the, in the Greek translation. So as they translate the Old Testament, they use kurios to translate God the Father. So if you're reading Old Testament, you're reading about God the Father, you're reading kurios, 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 kurios. Well, then when they write the New Testament, when they're referencing Jesus, they call him kurios. It's significant to see that when they translated the Old Testament, they gave a word to God the Father. And Paul and these guys choose to use that exact same word to identify Christ. It's an extremely high view of Christ. An extremely high view. They are merging Jesus and God the Father into what we're beginning to understand as a doctrine of the Trinity. He's more than a man. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a teacher. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is the God of Israel in flesh form, Jesus Christ. He says, Lord Jesus Christ. He communicates his deity with the word Lord. He communicates his humanity by using his earthly name, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And he identifies him as Christ, the Greek version of Messiah, the promised one. It's a high view of Christ. Well, why is that significant? I think it's significant, one... Because Paul introduces his letter like this, and he doesn't even think to explain how this is possible. I mean, think about this. You're talking to Jews and Gentiles, a lot of the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. So these guys love the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament. A lot of them probably memorized the Old Testament. They know who Yahweh is. They know who God the Father is. Paul now writes a letter and says Jesus and identifies him so closely to God the Father that at times you have a hard time distinguishing the two. And he doesn't argue for why he's doing this. He doesn't seek to prove it, which communicates to us that at some time between the three weeks and the six months that he was there, he laid an unbelievable foundation for who Christ is. He's already dealt with this topic. He's not just introducing this topic and saying, well, you guys don't need an explanation. I mean, this is huge. This would deserve a doctrinal dissertation to these people. You're calling a man the God of the Old Testament. And he just breezes right through it in this introduction. It's got to mean because he's already covered this. And we said that the message that he communicates to build this church is Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. And we said to build this church here in Sonoy, as we evangelize with people outside these walls, the message is Christ. We have to present Christ. We have to have a solid doctrine of Christ. It's also important. What he says here is also important. Because we said a couple weeks ago, this is maybe the first letter that Paul has ever written. Maybe the second. So it's very early in church history. Most scholars estimate this is 20 years maybe after Jesus has ascended and left the earth. Which means the deity of Christ didn't get created down the road in the Middle Ages. The church didn't change the doctrine of Christ later on and begin attributing Godhood to him. It was accepted very early in the church. Jesus was seen as God from day one. It didn't get created later on. Which means when we interact with people like Jehovah's Witnesses. Or Mormons who want to deny the deity of Christ. We have assurance that this isn't something that we've made up. This isn't a doctrine that came about in the 1800s like other doctrines that that we're familiar with. This doctrine started from day one that Jesus is, is God. That should be significant to us in this introduction.
He also communicates a gospel reminder to these people. Not only does he elevate a view of Christ, he reminds them of the gospel and he says, grace to you and peace. This is a familiar way that Paul introduces his letters in the New Testament. These two words communicate a lot about the gospel. Grace, we understand to be God's undeserved favor. It's God dealing with our sin in a way that we don't deserve. He punishes his son Christ instead of punishing us. He pours out wrath on Christ instead of pouring out wrath on us. The gospel in its simplest form is grace. It's, it's undeserved merit. It's undeserved righteousness. It's, it's undeserved salvation that's been given to us. Which then results in peace. Grace to you and peace. Because of God's grace, we have peace with God. We don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to worry about what happens to us when we die. We have peace with God. We have something that people on this earth would would pay high dollar for. For some reason, it's difficult for them to accept it because it's free. But I guarantee you, if we lined up, if we if we announced to Sonoy and the surrounding area that we had eternal life for sale, that you could purchase guaranteed future in heaven, no questions asked, you would have people lining up the door to pay money for it. We have an unbelievable, valuable possession in our hands, eternal life, peace with God. And Paul reminds them, he says, grace to you and peace. You guys have been saved. You've, you've, you've gained the unmerited favor of God. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In your notes there, you see, finding joy in the salvation of others. Paul is about to express unbelievable thanksgiving and joy for the salvation of these individuals. For these individuals that make up this church in Thessalonica. What we can see from this, from these verses, is that number one, Christians should value the salvation of others. Christians should value the salvation of others. If for no other reason, because if we've truly enjoyed the benefits of salvation, we should desire for others to experience those same benefits. I find it interesting that he says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He says, we know that you guys are saved. We know you're saved. He says, we don't think you're saved. We don't hope that you're saved. He says, we know you're saved. Which means that Paul, Silas, and Timothy have taken some time to evaluate these people's salvation. Why? Why do you think Paul and these guys are that concerned about whether or not these guys are saved or not? It's because they have time invested in this church. They poured time and energy into this church. They want to know... Did it, did it do anything? Did it, did, it, did it make any internal significance? Like we're giving our life to these people. We're risking our life for these people. At the end of the day, I don't want to hope that they're saved. I don't want to think that they're saved. Paul and Silas and Timothy say, we've got to know that you guys are saved. Because we've invested our life in church planting. 
And we got to know that at the end of the day, we're doing something that matters, that we're doing something that's effective. He says, we know, we know that God has chosen you. They're confident. There was, there was a moment in time where you, you transferred from death to life. You crossed over from darkness to light. You may not know fully when that happened. You may not be able to tell me exactly when that happened. So I'm not placing the importance on you remembering that. But I am telling you there was a time. You didn't grow into salvation. You didn't steadily progress to becoming saved. You may have grown in your understanding of the gospel. But I'm telling you, there was a second that if you'd have died, you'd have gone to hell. There was a second that when you died then, you would have gone to heaven. The Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you. The Holy Spirit doesn't creep into our life. He doesn't begin to indwell us. He comes and indwells us and he seals us for the day of redemption. There's a moment in time when you pass from death to life. Paul says, I know your response and I know it was valid and I know it was real. You got saved, so I know you're chosen because of the authenticity of your response. He says it came with power, with the Holy Spirit. He says with full conviction. That's the key phrase there, with full conviction. When a faithful gospel message is communicated to a heart prepared by the Holy Spirit, genuine, real, life-changing repentance occurs. Make sure you understand that. When a real, valid, faithful gospel message is communicated, when the content is communicated to a heart that's prepared by the Holy Spirit, genuine, real, life-changing repentance occurs. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You can't find a much better definition of repentance. It's a turning from idols and a turning to Christ. It's a leaving a life of sin to embrace a life of holiness. Paul says you did that. Your response was genuine. You walked away from a life of sin. You walked away from idols. You embraced a new way of life. You embraced a new God. You made a new decision. A life-changing decision. That has resulted in sanctification. 2 Corinthians 7.10 gives us a good description about the difference between real conviction and false conviction. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes two types of convictions. He says there's, there's there's a godly grief, there's a godly conviction about your sin that leads to repentance. It leads to salvation without regret. But there's a worldly conviction, a worldly grief that you can experience towards the gospel that leads to death. It leads to death. The Holy Spirit gives us godly grief, which produces real repentance. Here's what what godly grief looks like. Rather than running from Jesus when we are exposed to sin... We run to Him. 
See the difference? When, when we're exposed to the fact that we have sinned against the holy God, the creator of the universe who can do anything and everything that he wants, when we, when we truly find out that we have offended him, we have violated his holiness, he is wrathful and angry towards us, Godly grief is that we recognize that and we say, there is nothing else I can do but run to this God and hope there's forgiveness offered. I'm going to run to him rather than run from him. I mean, the natural reaction is to run from something like that. When you find out that someone is angry at you, coming after you, you you run from that naturally. Godly grief runs towards the wrathful God for salvation. Best example of this is Rahab in the Old Testament. Rahab hides the two spies. Remember, Joshua and Israel are about to invade the promised land. They're about to conquer Jericho. Two spies are sent in. Rahab houses them. She says, come here. Um, Everybody in this town knows what you guys do. We know that you, you destroyed the Egyptians at the Red Sea. We know what you've done to these other two cities across the Jordan River. We know you're about to walk in here and take over the promised land, Canaan. She says, will you please let me come with you guys? She could have easily run away to another city. She could have easily fled Jericho. She could have easily evaluated the situation and said, this is not going to turn out good for Jericho. I'm out of here. I'm going to run from this God of Israel. She runs to the God of Israel. She runs to the God of Israel and says, I got no other other place to go. You'll find me wherever I go. Eventually you'll catch up because you guys are going to take over this whole land. So I'm going to try to get on board now. I'm going to run to your God instead of away from your God. Godly grief causes us to run towards God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what godly grief looks like. We run to Christ. Worldly grief, though, produces death. And this is what some of us have experienced. We have shared the gospel with people who have had worldly grief about their sin. They've been convicted, but it hasn't been godly conviction. Worldly conviction produces death. Here's what worldly conviction looks like. It doesn't last because it's not real. You repent for a time because you are worried about the consequences. They only repent, they only respond to the gospel because they're worried about the consequences. Or, they feel guilty about it and they try to atone for their sins themselves. That's the person who says, yeah, I need to clean my act up. You're right. You know, I I am a sinner. I need to fix that. And that's the person who makes changes to their habits, starts coming to church regularly, and tries to work salvation in their own effort. They're trying to appease God. Wow, you're right. Like, I am a pretty bad person. I really have committed a lot of sin. I need to fix that. I need to fix that now. I need to get to where my good works outweigh my bad works. That's godly repentance because eventually the fear of hell and the fear of whatever message you gave to them will wear off. And they'll say, you know what? It really was a lot funner doing what I was doing. I'm out of here. It's been fun for this year and a half of hanging out with you guys and, and doing what you're doing. But I can't keep it up in my own efforts because I don't really want to be here. I don't really want to do this. 
I was scared at the time of what you were talking about. I'm out of here. I'm going back to what I was doing. We know people like that. It's worldly grief. It's not real. They try to atone for themselves. Or another way to experience worldly grief is that you feel so guilty that you're beyond forgiveness. You may have shared the gospel with people that say, you're right. But your God can't forgive me. God can't forgive me. Judas. Judas experienced worldly grief. Think about it. Peter and Judas denied Jesus. They both denied Jesus. Judas says, let me sell Jesus. Peter says, let me just, just do everything I can to disassociate myself with Jesus. One of them sticks around long enough to be forgiven. One of them runs to Jesus when he sees him on the shore. Says, let's go ahead and paddle in. That looks like Jesus. One of them sits down with Jesus and has a conversation. And Jesus experiences reconciliation with Peter. Judas feels extremely guilty when he realizes this silver is really not that good. I just betrayed the Messiah. And he runs and kills himself. Just, I can't be forgiven for this. There's no indication from Scripture that, that, that he, he had to go kill himself. It's worldly grief. He recognizes sin, but he doesn't run to God. He doesn't run to God. He goes and kills himself. He goes and kills himself. He makes a decision, a, a choice to run from God. Godly grief produces, or worldly grief produces death. Before we move to the last point, I want to I want to remind you that we should anticipate and expect that we will share the gospel many times and people will not respond in the way that Paul sees these people respond. Think about it. I mean, Jesus gives us the parable of the soil. If you want to jot these down and look at them later, Matthew 13, 1 through 9 and then 18 through 23. Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then verses 18 through 23. That's where you see the, the, the sower spreads the gospel. And it springs up at times, and it looks good, and then it just dies away. Jesus says, that's going to happen. We're going to share the message of the kingdom, and people are going to initially respond with worldly grief, and then fall away from it. And it's going to die. We also see that if it can happen to Jesus, it can certainly happen to any of us. John chapter 6, verse 60. John chapter 6, verse 60. You've got Jesus who presents some pretty heavy teaching. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus had people that are considered disciples. Not people who were just attenders. People who were considered legitimate disciples. People who had been following Jesus for a while now. 
who finally hear him teach something and they say, no, that's, that's going too far. That's, that's, just, that's asking way too much. I'm out of here. Because they no longer followed him anymore. Jesus had people in his life who he had invested in who said, I'm out of here. It was, it was worldly grief, not godly grief. Paul had his unfortunate friend who's become famous because of his desertion, Demas. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, Paul kind of cries out and says, Hey, I'm all alone over here. My buddy Demas, he's gone back to the things of this world. If it can happen to Paul and Jesus, then we should expect that there are going to be people in our life who initially respond to the gospel and then stop. So we can't get discouraged over the fact that we've shared the gospel a few times, we've seen some response, and now they're done. That should not discourage us from continuing to press forward with sharing the gospel. Because Jesus had it happen to him, Paul's had it happen to him. I can guarantee you it's going to happen to Adam, it's going to happen to Topi, it's going to happen to Tyson, it's going to happen to Ben, it's going to happen to Philip. We're going to share the gospel with people who we think are saved and they're going to walk away from the faith. Lastly, number two, Christians should rejoice over the salvation of others. We should value their salvation. We should rejoice over it. Back in 1 Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he's always thanking God for them. He's always thanking God for them. He's as thankful for their salvation and growth as he is his own. I like how he doesn't thank them for accepting the gospel. You know, he doesn't write to Thessalonica and say, hey, thanks for responding to my message. He says, God, thank you for saving these people. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to infuse that message that we shared with them with power so they would respond to this. Credit's given to God, not to them for making a good decision. He's thankful for all of them. Notice he doesn't say to the church at Sovereign Hope, I'm really faithful to, to thank God for Topi because Topi really has a faith that works and he's really laboring a lot in love. He doesn't call out individuals here and elevate them and say, I really pray a lot for these guys because they are so good at what they're doing. He says, I thank God for all of you. You've got to realize that there are people in this church, in Thessalonica, that weren't doing as good of a job producing a faith that worked and a love that labored and a hope that endured. There were different degrees of this sanctification, but Paul's thankful for all of them. He doesn't distinguish between who's really growing and who needs to catch up with everybody growing. I mean, he's about to address some situations that are wrong in the church. It's a testimony to us that we need to look for the good in others in this church as well. That I can be thankful for what God's doing in, in one of your lives, even if it's not as much as I want to see him doing right now. So I thank God for all of you because of what's going on. He's always praying for them. And then he's always remembering them. He focuses on their past, their faith. Their present, their love, and their future, their hope. He's thankful for all of it. Application. Two things for you to think about as we leave.
There's a formula that you need to understand down here. Gospel plus Holy Spirit plus receiving gospel plus Holy Spirit equals genuine life-changing conversion. Gospel plus Holy Spirit plus receiving gospel plus Holy Spirit equals genuine life-changing conversion. If you're missing one of those elements, you cannot expect to see someone convert. There are going to be times when you share the gospel and the Holy Spirit's not in that. For whatever reason that we don't fully understand. There's going to be times when people are hearing the gospel, but the Holy Spirit is not opening their eyes to it. We have to communicate the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and also have people receive the gospel with hearts that have been prepared by the Holy Spirit to see genuine conversion. We can expect genuine conversion when we see those things happen. Then lastly, do we love people enough to thank God for them? Have you reached a point in this church where you love people enough where you're regularly thanking God for their salvation? If not, we need to labor a little harder at it. We need to labor harder at it to love each other the way that Paul loves this church. Lastly, do we long to see them grow to work for it? Do we long to see people grow enough that we're going to work for their growth? Are we going to exhaust ourselves in this church to love each other and to pursue the sanctification of each other? Are we going to structure our schedules because we want to see each other grow? Not just to see ourselves grow. We're not going to just structure our schedule so that we can come to small group, so that we can go to a discipleship group. Are we going to structure our schedules to where we can invest in other people as well? Are we going to love people the way Paul loves this church? Are we going to love people, care about people, long for their salvation and their growth the way that Paul does? Paul says, I know you guys are saved. I've seen your fruit. Senior, I know the message you received. It was the message that I gave you. I know your response. We can know too when people are getting saved. We can recognize it in the same way Paul recognized it. I want you to take this and allow it to encourage you to take the gospel faithfully so that you can see people faithfully respond to it and recognize when that happens. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the gospel came to us. It came to us through parents, grandparents, friends, neighbors, co-workers. But the ultimate important thing is that the gospel came, no matter who it was that brought it to us. Your gospel came to us. And God, we thank you that your gospel came to us not only in word, But it came with the Holy Spirit in power. And for many of us in this room, it came in full conviction. We turned from idols. We turned to Christ. God, I praise you and thank you for those in this church that are saved. Because for those that are saved, I can be thankful for their faith that is working, their love that is laboring, and their hope that is enduring. God, I thank you that they responded to a valid message of the gospel. Their response was genuine, 
And their life of faith proves that. God, if there's anyone in this room that that is hearing this and is saying, that's not true about me. God, I pray that you would draw them to salvation. That the message of the gospel today will go in power to them. That the Holy Spirit will, will implant it into their hearts. They will respond with full conviction. Because it's godly grief that causes them to run to you. And not worldly grief that causes them to run away from you. God, I pray that as we have an opportunity now before we leave to to sing and express joy and honor back to you because of the gospel. That it would be an opportunity for us individually to, to thank you, to praise you, to honor you. That you would encourage us through that as we see others who have responded in the same way that we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.